Tom, welcome to the Commerce Talks podcast. Today we are going to talk about marketplaces and a marketplace maturity model. We try to understand what is a marketplace, what is a platform, and what are the common mistakes by building a marketplace. You are an industry veteran. I would even say you're an industry veteran in the marketplace space, but we will come to that in a minute. Can you give like a, a short pitch of your life in the e-commerce industry so people, listeners here in the podcast understand what kind of competence level we are talking today. Great. Well, well, first off, thanks, Alex, for having me on the Commerce Talks podcast. It's an honor to be with you today. A little bit about our journey through the digital commerce world. So McFadden Digital started 35 years ago pre-commerce, but what we really started doing was document management, engineering document management, which morphed into content management, web content management. So in the 80s, we're doing document management, early 90s, web content management, mostly static brochureware sites. And then in the late 90s, around 97, we started doing commerce as you know, SSL really enabled the transactional, secure transactional capabilities in 95, 96. That was a major transition in the start of many companies like Intershop, Broadvision, Vignette, ATG. Uh, that really started a lot of our commerce practice in the, the dot-com heyday of the late 90s. We saw the uh, bubble grow and the bubble burst, <laughs> fortunately, riding through the ups and downs of that uh, kind of crazy time. And I think there's some analogies of, of that time to where the market is today. So a lot of lessons learned from that, that era. We continue doing commerce and still do lots of commerce projects today. But for the past uh, five, six years, it's been pretty much exclusively marketplaces that we go to market with. More than half of that work actually is e-commerce, of course, because it is a transactional system. But we really got into marketplaces 15 years ago, almost by accident. And we certainly didn't call them marketplaces back then. I called them federated commerce or other multi-channel, multi-storefront implementations. And some of those early projects were, one was a, a billion-dollar site for the U.S. government, for the U.S. Army. All the IT procurement happened through this marketplace with some pretty sophisticated B2B capabilities like punch out and ordering workflows and so forth. And really marketplaces became more popular phrase in the starting in 2010 and really about half a decade ago, it became much more popular and much more understood by people. I think there's still a lot of confusion around what the word marketplace means, what the word platform means, which is really a whole other subject we can talk about today too. Okay. And a profile on, on the McFadden website, I saw that You've been involved in hundreds of big enterprise projects. So you saw technologies even as old as ATG from Oracle, WebSphere, SAP Hybris, the rise in, in, in the US like 10 years ago and, and many more. I would assume that even on top of the old technology providers, there have been some marketplace projects. Like I can remember some projects I've been involved in within 2008, 2009, and there was no marketplace software around that so we tried to build on top of Magento, for example. And I'm pretty sure people did it with the Java-based software solutions. Do you still remember how, how, how this went? Yes, painfully. <laughs> so in the days of having to build them, everything custom from scratch, maybe referring also to BOL Ball in, in Europe, which was built on ATG back in the pre-2010, I think that was early 2000s. We built a lot of these sites on on ATG as well, and they were multi-year projects, sometimes a $10 million implementation cost, three years to build out a marketplace. Teleflora was an example of that. Uh, so very expensive, very time-consuming. 
But again, that was the limitation of the technology back in those days. Uh, today's technology platforms like Spreaker are much more capable with mo- more modern technology, with marketplace capability built into them. So those timeframes for implementation can now be several months, a, a handful of months, and you can usually drop off a zero or two on the implementation cost for launching the marketplace, depending on the scale and scope of it. But yeah, yeah go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. In our in our experience building out sites, we certainly worked with a lot of B2B, and that's really our favored segment, as obviously is a great strength of Spriker. And we've built probably over 10 different B2B marketplaces that generate over a billion dollars of sales of GMV, gross merchandise value, or top line revenue sales. And, and that's where we see kind of the sweet spot. We've been fortunate to work with over 10% of the Fortune 500 enterprises in building digital commerce solutions. What do you think is a driver of this new marketplace initiatives like 20 years ago and especially in B2B? So in B2B, we still have not even reached the 1P e-commerce level. So companies still still have a hard time of really providing a fully digitized customer journey and now suddenly want to jump into the marketplace game. So what is a driver for the marketplace initiatives? What have you seen there? So. It is truly a business transformation. It's a different business model, an economic model. And maybe this may be a good time to talk about the pipeline versus platform concepts. So first party e-commerce, and in fact, retail for millennia has really been a pipeline process. So by pipeline, we mean sequential series of events that have to happen one after another, often very labor intensive activities. So a traditional e-commerce site, B2C or B2B, and even brick and mortar retail involves Usually somebody sourcing goods, so they have to find products from distributors or, or manufacturers. They have to negotiate contracts. And sometimes, especially in some B2B industries, that can take one to two months just to negotiate the contracts. That has to be loaded into the ERP. And that's typically you know a fairly cryptic 40-character description of the product. That integration into ERP can take some time. Then the marketing team will merchandise the goods, creating the SEO-optimized text, taking the, the photographs, organizing it appropriately in the proper categories, setting up the proper cross-sells, upsells, et cetera. Merchandising can be a very labor-intensive activity as well. The retailer or B2B distributor also sets the price, which sounds trivial, but it's actually an important differentiation between pipeline versus platform. We'll get back to that. They have to hold the inventory, and this is both physically and financially. So you need to have the distribution centers the fulfillment capabilities to manage all the goods that you're you're sourcing, which is obviously capital intensive to build out the f- infrastructure, but also capital intensive in having to purchase the goods and and put cash out first before actually receiving cash in from the customer. Then processing the orders, typically that's automated, and fulfilling the orders, another labor intensive step, and very expensive as well for many retailers, B two B distributors, having to fulfill that. So all those activities are very labor intensive sequence that have to happen, again, typically one to two months for that full life cycle, sometimes more to actually get a product out to a customer. So that's the pipeline concept. Platform, on the other hand, marketplaces as a platform business just have standard terms and conditions for all sellers. So it's one document applies to all sellers, no matter how many you you onboard. They may reference things like a commission grid for it's 10% commission or 15% commission or 20% commission. Terms like how quickly you need to fulfill, how quickly you need to respond to customer mm. queries. And you typically only have two major labor categories in there or, or organizational roles that have to be fulfilled. One to recruit sellers and the other to support the sellers and then the, the processing orders. But again, that's automated, much like in the pipeline business. So you build up this network effect, which is really an exponential 
uh, scalability as opposed to the linear scalability of a pipeline in that you have many parallel third-party sellers. And those third-party sellers do all that, much of that pipeline of activity. So they source goods, they negotiate contracts, they load their catalog, they merchandise the products, they set the price, they hold the inventory, they fulfill the orders. So all that sequential activity turns into a parallel activity where you have dozens, hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of sellers doing all that in parallel. And in fact, I, I mentioned the setting the price. This is part of the that flywheel that Amazon's so well known for is the third-party sellers end up competing against each other to drive down the price. So they want to win the buy box on the, the product detail page that says they're the, they're, they are the recommended seller of this product. And that drives down the, the price for the customer, you know, drives more customers to the site, keeps the flywheel going. And in fact, we've seen this model expand where it's not just resellers sourcing goods from distributors. It can be distributors selling directly on a marketplace or it can be manufacturers selling directly on a, a B2B distributor's marketplace. So it really becomes more parallel. And that series of, I think it's nine steps gets sourced out. Most of it gets sourced out to third-party sellers. And uh, we talked about evolution from, in the marketplace maturity model, defines five stages, some, similar to capability maturity model for software development or CMMI. So the first stage is first-party commerce, which we talked about those sequence of activities that have to happen in a pipeline manner. The second tier of the marketplace maturity model is dropship. And dropship is, is a minor incremental improvement because only two of those nine steps gets outsourced to somebody else. Somebody else fulfills the orders and somebody else holds the inventory. But the B2B distributor or the e-commerce operator still has to source goods, negotiate contracts, load them into ERP, merchandise them, set the price, process the order. All those activities still have to be done by the dropship operator or the e-commerce operator that's leveraging dropship providers. Versus in tier three of the marketplace maturity model, the third-party marketplace, that's when you truly become a platform and all those uh, activities become outsourced to third-party sellers and can operate in parallel. Level level four of the marketplace maturity model, like CMM, is quantitative management. So this is when the data and the numbers really drive the marketplace scale. So as sellers perform well, they get promoted to premier sellers, get better options to get the buy box. If they perform poorly, they get suspended automatically if their rating falls below 3.5. If certain third-party goods performing exceptionally well an operator may decide to take them in as first-party inventory or even bring them into a brick-and-mortar store if they're a retailer, omni-channel retailer. Or if a first-party good is moving very slowly, seasonal or difficult to fulfill, maybe they outsource that to third-party sellers. So letting that data really manage the business at, at tier four. And level five is optimizing, much like CMM as well, where you innovate with new business models. And Amazon and Alibaba and Walmart have been excellent at doing this. So it could be you're adding not just having a physical goods marketplace, but adding a services marketplace where you, you have third-party providers of services or digital goods services, digital goods as well, or innovating with omni-channel integration or live streaming, many different ways in which a business can innovate at the optimizing tier of marketplace maturity model. And let, let's go back to the to the first step, to the, to the dropship model. So I remember the first dropship business models. Those were the business models with this that laid behind CSN, Hayneedle, and many, many more. Those were the webs. Those were in the early days of e-commerce when we all had the impression that we now need multi-niche category retailers. I don't know, bet.com, sofa.org, whatever. <laughs> and these 
these were all like drop shipping businesses, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But 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 those multi-niche retailers were operated by like one one entity and they had like let's say 100 domains different niches and they had a lot of they had a lot of this this kind of drop shipping businesses behind do you still see it around a lot these days or is is every manufacturer every distribu distributor trying to change the 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 model into into the the 3p marketplace model people become aware of the the model and as these products become available on multiple sources and and one of our clients, Ferguson, acquired build.com and they operated faucets.com and doorknobs.com and, and a whole bunch of those example micro sites, same e-commerce engine underneath it, but different domain, which was supposed to be the unique area. Now people are looking more for that all-in-one solution. So a marketplace can can add two two benefits or benefits on two ways if you're playing offense or playing defense. So you can look at it as, you know, I've got the customer has four items in the cart and we want to increase our AOV and have them cross sell them the fifth fifth product to add into their cart, which is from a marketplace. And that's you know, playing offense, which is great to increase your AOV, but it's also playing defense. If you have, if somebody's looking for those five products and you only have four of them and they can't find the fifth one, they want to displace one order. They may go to Amazon or somewhere else to get that fifth, fifth product and buy the, and move the entire five items of that cart to a competitor's website And so it's not just losing that fifth product in the cart, it's losing all four or all five of the products that could be in the cart. So it's mm. both a offensive play and a defensive play. And you you've said that most marketplaces you've seen and 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 your help you've you've helped to 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 be built are following this kind of buy box model. What what we are also seeing is in B2B that it's it's not about the price anymore. So it's not it's not really a buy box competition because orders on, on offers might be super exclusive and it's more an availability game and not so not so not so much a pricing game absolutely the out of stock dilemma that the supply chain issues of the past two years have been a major factor for a lot of organizations so and that, that's also something that is a concern of many marketplace operators is or those going into the marketplace business or considering it is Oh no, I'm going to have cannibalization. Well, actually it's it's not a real concern. It it should not be a concern because it actually helps with winning that customer and keeping that customer. So with the especially with the increased supply chain challenges, having that out of stock on a product means that customer is most likely going to go to your competitor's website. And again, they may not take just that one cart, there may be future carts that go to the competitor for ordering if you're not able to stock those goods. So certainly the marketplace business model where you have parallel third-party sellers provides a much more resilient supply chain and sourcing of goods to your to your customer and avoiding mm -hmm. those out of stock situations. Do you see many marketplace product projects are still influenced a lot by the features and functions of amazon.com? They certainly are the leader in the US. You know Alibaba in, in China, Mercado Libre in Latin America. So certainly they are setting the standard and the pace. It's going to be hard for a lot of any retailer to really catch up to Amazon. Walmart's probably got the best chances and they're, they're doing very well with their marketplace as well. Amazon is has really been a disruptor in in the industry and not just in their marketplace but how they've transformed commerce and and other services from AWS to FBA but you know if you diagnose their earnings report FBA and the massive investment they've been making in their distribution capabilities has actually been a low margin or negative margin business for them but that's driving more sellers to their site which enables them to sell more 
advertising services, they have a huge retail media network. So in, in just uh, 10 years, they grew to be the number three advertising platform in the world. Google's number one, Facebook's number two, and Amazon is number three with $31 billion of advertising spend on their retail media network last year. Hmm. Okay. And, and, and do you, do you think it makes sense for, let's, Let's look at a B2B company. A B2B company, like two or three billion in their category, maybe close to category leader. Does it make sense for them when they are building the marketplace to take Amazon as an example? Certainly, there are a lot of lessons to be learned there. We find that, uh, and this goes to the, the philosophy, is it is a marketplace a winner-take-all market? And we think that there are lots of different niche B2B areas in which B2B operator can be, B2B marketplace operator can be highly successful. So I'll, I'll list through a few of our clients right now. One is a chemical distribution company. You know, if you need to get a truckload of a hazmat chemical, you're not going to buy that on Amazon. Or if you need to do certain other searches and, and get the material safety data sheets and other related aspects to chemical distribution, it, which is a highly fragmented and highly inefficient industry, and probably not something that Amazon is going to go into that they have a great opportunity to really dominate that space. And Amazon's probably not going to go in there. If you, another one of our clients sells fasteners, a base supply, and everybody jokes about, well, it's just a nuts and bolts industry. Well, if you want to find certain specifics for high volume, for aerospace, for certain constraints, they leverage the marketplace model to scale to up to half a million SKUs of fasteners, nuts, bolts, screws, rivets, all types of materials, all types of ratings, And high volume. So in fact, they can dominate the fastener space and even some of the bigger uh, bigger re or industrial supply companies are sourcing goods from Bay Supply, Bay Fastener. Again, a little niche of nuts and bolts. You think, well, how can somebody own that space? But there are lots of other industries in which a niche good with special requirements, maybe it's the, the CPQ configure price quote need for a good that's difficult to sell. Uh, Those are a lot of lot of areas for companies to exceed and excel in different areas. If if we want to look at a a B 2 C analogy, Amazon, Walmart, of course, are very successful marketplaces selling apparel. So you say, well, um, that market's taken up. Nobody's going to have any chance to run a, an apparel marketplace. One of your earlier guests was StockX, and Goat is a similar company to that. They sell sneakers, and these two companies grew in seven years to be multi billion dollar companies selling sneakers. Maybe they're a lot of them are thousand dollar, you know, specialized Air Jordans that that sneakerheads really love. But apparel is a market that already has big players. But you can still build a highly successful multi billion dollar marketplace selling apparel in those niche areas. Similar, mm -hmm. similarly for B 2 B. I'm looking at the balance sheet of of Amazon. Then I can see that the the revenue source for earning money out of the marketplace is is less like the listing fee and is more and more fees like financing fees, logistic fees, FBA fees. So it's far beyond of the initial idea of just offering your your website as a window to your customers and therefore charge 5%, 10%, whatever. It's far more fees. Going back to your B2B examples, and B2B usually just don't have such a big margin. So everything beyond like 2% might be way too much for the nuts and bolts business. Plus, you won't be willing to, to add financial services, logistic services, advertising services on top because that, that's just not part of your business model and maybe you cannot afford it. 
still do you see examples in this space where marketplaces are following even this more advanced trajectory of of or dif of distributing earnings into in, into other categories not just listing fees A absolutely and in fact maybe the, the financial model of a marketplace is something we should delve into we have a we have a chapter on that in our book uh, marketplace best practices and uh to break down the ROI and the financial model of a marketplace. Let's look at the top line, which is the revenue, and the bottom line, which is the the expense. We mentioned that you have much uh, smaller headcount for which is on the bottom bottom part of the ROI equation. So your labor costs can be a lot smaller with a marketplace model. In fact, they're often called capital light business models, where you don't have the heavy expense of fulfillment centers or high you know, merchandising staff or big fulfillment operations. So the bottom number typically can be decreased the cost and the upper part of the ROI equation, the revenue or GMV side can be broken down into a number of, of different fees, as you mentioned, but let, let's look at where the revenue comes from a marketplace in traditional retail or e-commerce. It's, it's a buy low, sell high. Your, your profits are the difference between what you purchased it for and what you yeah. sold it for. We, 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 we call it retail 1.0. Offline yeah. and online, that's the same. Exactly, exactly. And in the instead of buy low, sell high, a marketplace is enable others to sell, take a slice of the pie. So you build a platform on which other people can sell their products and you take a slice of that pie. And most typically it's the commission, which we mentioned 10%, 15%, 5%, depending on the category, depending on the, the, the seller. Uh, and that commission grid uh, is typically dynamic and can be adjusted based on, on the categories or other criteria. Many other ways of of monetizing a marketplace include advertising, and, and we'll get back to Amazon as you mentioned. You thirty one billion, I think the last quarter was eight eight billion, more than eight billion, eight or nine billion of the retail media network, and a lot of other companies are, are launching, especially in grocery, are launching retail media networks to monetize the traffic that they gain from from the marketplace sellers and the marketplace customers, the buyers and the sellers on their on their platform. But those fees for sellers can be typically also a, a monthly fee. So to be a basic member, it's $25 a month. To be a premier member, it's $40 a month and you get higher placement in the search results or other benefits. You pay 1% less commission if you're a premier seller. There can be listing fees. eBay is like this, where you, if you want to list a product on eBay, it costs you a couple dollars to, to list it there. There can be lead fees, in, and this is typical in B2B often, where you don't actually complete the transaction on the marketplace, but you just provide the lead to the, to the uh, seller to complete the transaction outside of the marketplace with the customer. The advertising can be all, all types of forms. It can be you know, prioritized you at the top of the search result. It can be banner ads. It can be site stores, stores on the site for the, for the brand. Many different ways, and Amazon seems to be coming out with new ways of monetizing their the retail media network every month to uh, enable sellers or to extract more money from sellers, depending on how you're looking at it. <laughs> yeah, just saw um, a documentary today from the biggest German news channel where where they were reporting about the so-called Amazon monopoly, and and they a lot of sellers reported there that it's became kind of unbearable. Because there were so many new revenue streams added from Amazon and became so unfair over time that they are, became merely a logistics company. And like people that really were proud about their assortment capabilities and sourcing capabilities, they are just like a logistics company now trying to 
trying to trying trying to earn trying to earn money is is it something this kind of this kind of end game amazon is in right now which eventually leads maybe to some cartel cartel legislation where they where they will break it up is this something you're involved in in discussions in because like from a business point of view it's cool so like obviously amazon is making money they've done the right thing they they are now too successful but like from the moral standpoint <laughs> i would say <laughs> that's a that's a very different discussion here absolutely and there's there's a lot of debate whether platform the platform business model is too powerful and we see lots of these battles working out in the legal system and, and in the actions of individual sellers. So a lot of sellers, especially Chinese sellers, moved off Amazon, or, or maybe they still stay on Amazon, but they also work on Walmart, because that is a major risk to a seller. If for valid or invalid reasons, you get kicked off of Amazon and your entire business is selling on Amazon, your your revenue stream is pretty much shut off. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing that's also happening with these, and this, this is a trend that may go up and may die, but there's been huge investment in the e-commerce aggregators like Thrashio and Heyday and some of these organizations that have raised billions of dollars to aggregate or buy lots of little sellers in in attempt to build up the next big brand like the, the CPG companies. They're not there and, and some of this investment is slowed and whether that a viable business model is yet to be yet to be seen. But certainly there's Last year, $12 billion went into aggregating e-commerce sellers. So, And some of these, like Thrasio, were buying an e-commerce seller, an Amazon seller every week, adding a new, new brand to their portfolio. Mm-hmm. But back to the question, are, are marketplaces and the platform business model too powerful? One of the uh, big cases, public cases where this has played out has been Epic Games versus Apple and Google. So... In the digital goods marketplace, we can talk about different types of marketplaces, services, marketplaces, or marketplaces for services, marketplaces for digital goods, marketplaces for physical goods. But in the digital goods marketplaces of Amazon and, uh, sorry, of Apple and Google, they cumulatively generate $130 billion of revenue, $130 billion. And most of that is at a 30% commission rate, sometimes 15%, but most of it is at 30%. So imagine that Amazon, sorry, keep saying Amazon. Apple and Google collect about $30 billion from their digital goods marketplace. And that is almost pure profit, very high gross margin revenue. And again, that gets to the difference between GMV and revenue, but $30 billion roughly of almost pure profit. So Epic Games doesn't like that because they sell about a billion dollars of Fortnite uh, annually, including in-game purchases. And they were paying using that same round number of 30%, $300 million to Apple and Google as the commission for their digital goods. Even even Amazon is kind of on the, the loser side, if you will, of the marketplace game where, and Amazon Kindle, for example, our book, if you wanted to get our marketplace best practices book on Kindle, you can't buy it. You can't get it on the Kindle app on your iPhone, your iPad or Android because you have to pay, Amazon would have to pay 30% of that money to Apple. If you bought oh. a digital good in the Kindle app, like a book, you'd have to pay 30% to Apple. So if you want to get the book, you have to go to amazon.com website, buy it there, add it to your Kindle library, and then you can view it on your iPhone, your iPad, or or other device. But that commission rate is is very powerful, very expensive also for the sellers. Now, back to legislation and what can happen there. The, the U.S., the antitrust laws are generally written to prevent, uh, to protect the consumer. 
So they stop bad actors from monopolizing, you know, oil or other limited resources and, and jacking up the price. So it's a bad service and it's a bad price for the consumer. Marketplaces like Amazon tend to provide better services, better goods, better pricing to the customer than first party e-commerce. So it's hard to break up or threaten to break up Amazon based on how they're treating the uh, customer because the customer really in the end gets a better better deal from Amazon. The third party sellers, as you mentioned, are, are complaining about being treated poorly. You know, it used to be Walmart that was known for treating their their sellers, their vendors poorly and, and beating up their vet vendors. Now, now Walmart's the nice guy and Amazon's the bad guy for the sellers. So the, it'd be interesting to see if the laws change about protecting the third party sellers as opposed to protecting the, the consumer as they're currently written. It also yeah. makes it very difficult for tech startups to, <laughs> to succeed when the big guy, the big tech platforms will end up buying a lot of them or stopping a lot yeah. of them. Same discussion we have in Europe now really something the, the, the consumer is benefiting from. But on the long term, maybe there's going to be some changes. Let's, let, let's see. I've met some, some business models or some company founders that, that are still opposed against the idea of building a marketplace. And let, let me give you like the two examples here, and I'd like to hear your, your, your opinion. So one example is, um, is a business called Böttcher, which is an office supply business in Europe, mainly Germany, 600 million, very focused on small B2B customers, so SMBs which are getting their office supplies, sometimes consumer electronics stuff and their replacement battery for their screwdriver, whatever. And they say our core or our core value is that we can ship everything we have on our website like within 24 hours. And there's a very, very good invoice quality for our customers. Our website is not very complex. If you were watching now the website, it reminds you of something based out of 2005, 2006. It's not very complex, easy to find everything. We don't want to scrutinize this kind of experience with bad product data, bad inventory data, apart from this whole invoice headache. And actually, that's one of the reasons why consumers are going there, because the whole invoice B2B thing on Amazon.de, Amazon FR, it's not working at all. It's like maybe in 60% of the cases, but it's still it's still very buggy. So what do you say to Mr. Böttcher? Good, good decision or should he consider marketplace strategies in the future? So as, as maturity evolves in the, the marketplace, there certainly are uh, techniques for doing the proper seller integration, doing the proper curation, and even leveraging some AI or some sophisticated tools to improve the, the inventory and order management and catalog information to ensure data accuracy that one part of the implementation process is the defining the taxonomy, which is how you harmonize uh, catalogs and, and category structures from dozens, hundreds of sellers into the, your core catalog structure and, and data structures for your customer-facing e-commerce site. So that's certainly one issue that, that needs to be addressed, and it can be addressed, and it has been addressed by many people very successfully. So I think the technology challenge of integrating catalogs and, and inventory levels and order status has been solved. So that's that's a fear that that doesn't have to be, that's, I'd say, somewhat unfounded. It certainly can is an activity that has to be performed, but it's not an insurmountable activity. The other aspect, I think, is the curation level, and marketplaces can vary in the amount of curation that they do from the least amount, when you think of like eBay and you know, in the early days, anything goes in the wild, wild west, rumors of human organs being sold on eBay and all kinds of crazy things 
to much more highly curated luxury goods, high-end retail marketplaces where the category curation, the product curation, and the content curation is is highly controlled, meaning that you don't allow certain goods that you don't want to on your site, which you feel may diminish your brand or the the seller is not of a high quality. You can curate out the sellers, the categories, the products, etc. Okay, then the second example. The other one is called Toman, which is the leading European retailer for professional audio equipment. So if you're doing concerts, if you're recording podcasts, microphones like this, they are provided by Toman. Toman is um, doing 1 billion euro in revenue. And the whole market in this category in Europe is 4 billion. And then I approached them, obviously, and said, okay, it totally makes sense with your powerful market positioning to build a marketplace because a you can you can do kind of a second hand thing because all this very expensive equipment goes through eBay now or or through other third party c2c platforms and on the other hand you're so powerful you know all the very very cool customers other manufactured manufacturers would pay money to be listed on your marketplace. But I said, no, we don't want to do it because same here, we have very professional consumers. They expect us from us a very high delivery quality. They expect new products. They expect all the new data sheets. So we cannot afford from, let's say, one out of 50 marketplace products sold to have one bad experience. So same opinion here from your side? So they can certainly do the curation again. So uh, I have a similar experience here. We just bought a 4K video camera and buying one off of Amazon. I, I don't trust the ratings and reviews there. You know, are these fake? Same here. You know, Same is here. it a knockoff brand? Is it authentic good? But instead purchase from BH Photo, which is more of a consumer focused high end uh, video and photography site in the US, which I draw some parallels to this uh, professional focused uh, business in Europe. So certainly they, they have the brand to drive the trust. If they do the proper curation, again, it's a matter of doing that curation, which is still, it's not like when you launch a marketplace that you have uh, given up all sense of control of your site, the content on your site, the products on your site, the categories on your site, you still curate that. You still do have that control. The second hand, they could offer the uh, authentication or refurbish certification of those goods. So we talked about StockX and Goat. You know, they provide authentication that, yes, this is a, you know, a 2010 Air Jordan that's worth a thousand or two thousand dollars, whatever that sneaker happens to be worth. Satair runs a marketplace that's part of Airbus, and they have a marketplace for refurbished airplane parts. It's not something you're going to want to buy off eBay to put on your passenger airline. You want to have that trusted certification of a knowledgeable, you know, trusted source like Airbus or Satair, their their airplane parts business, to validate the quality of that. And that's been hugely successful for. For Satire, which again is a professional segment, needs to be highly trusted, needs to be quality goods because you know, human lives depend on it. So I'd say there are ways of curating and even authenticating the goods as a service. And that could be justification for charging more than those used goods would be sold for on eBay if they can authenticate them. Okay, okay. Have you have you seen examples where companies B2C or B2B moved into the marketplace game and then said, okay, that it's not working for us, we're going to stop it? Absolutely. It happens quite a bit. Our, our book's called Marketplace Best Practices, but there are lots of marketplace bad practices. Oh. <laughs> so one example of, of what happened is, um, and this happened, we've seen this several times at some big you know, Fortune 500 companies. 
they, they're tentative about getting into the marketplace space. So they say, well, we're going to try it out on this different website under a different domain, and we're not going to sell competing products to our core categories. And that ends up failing. We've seen that fail quite a few times. I'm not going to mention business names, but uh, some very well-known globally recognized names where it's failed. And they launch again, perhaps in a different country, and it's highly successful for them, but they've launched integrated third-party goods in with their first-party goods on the core business site, core e-commerce site, and even offering you know, competing products to their own goods so that you know they're, they're not worried about cannibalization. They feel that you know, if they're out of stock, better to let the consumer buy a competing a product from a, a competitor and take the you know 15% commission instead of losing the, the transaction and perhaps losing the customer. Mm. So that's one of the, the bad practices is not integrating the third-party goods in with the first-party goods in the same site and not marketing it. But but, uh, no. but maybe let's stick with this bad practice like just for a minute because that's easy to say for us. Like we are coaches like from the sideline. We are not we are yeah. not in the game. Like if you are in the game, in the company and there's a procurement department or a purchase department, whatever you want to call it, and has to, discuss, has to discuss the marketplace idea with this kind of new business owner who comes with this fancy marketplace idea. Then the <laughs> procurement department usually say, you know, Tom... I understand the idea, but if there's really products out there, our customer wants, and we don't have them listed, let them buy us. So we 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 will buy the products. It's still in our standard inventory rule. And and for what reason should we compete with uh, with other vendors selling the same products? Then then we have to pay our own inventory and purchasing price, and we don't control the quality. And this discussions you usually have a lot in the beginning of a marketplace project. And, Those are not easy to solve, even though from an outside coach perspective, we would say that doesn't matter. That's the wrong. That's the wrong move. So, what is what is the shortcut? What is the what is the trick? Your advice here you can give for those discussions. Yeah. Not only the procurement team, we also see that that challenge raised by the merchandising team. So, head of merchandising, yeah. will, because it's their careers. You know, they may have dozens or more people doing merchandising and sourcing goods, and that's their career. Well, if we bring on a marketplace, we're going to have to fire all these people. Well, you don't necessarily have to fire them. You can reassign them into different roles to operate the marketplace. But the answer to that is is typically just do some, a quick solution to that is just search for certain goods that are that somebody going to that retailer or, or distributor site would probably look for and show them the, hey, here's the null result on your site. And Here's the, if I search on one of your competitors, who's a, also a distributor or retailer, but they have a marketplace. And here you see on Best Buy, for example, Best Buy Canada, who operates a marketplace. Oh, here they have, uh, you know, 350 of these camera accessories that you have zero of, if it's in the example of camera, camera goods. So showing the results of comparing a competitor who does operate a marketplace to one that does not is certainly an easy way. Another aspect is looking at the financial model and the scalability. Yes, you can hire more people to source more goods and to merchandise more goods and to fulfill more goods, but that is expensive, linearly scaling business as opposed to the exponential scale of the platform economic business model. So how quickly can you scale that and look at the financial model of, okay, you need to hire this many more merchandisers, build out this many more fulfillment centers, add this many more vendors that you need to manage. And the costs of all that, in when you do the financial modeling, show that it's not a highly profitable or highly scalable business approach. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was one very, very remarkable bad practice. And as the last questions, do we have another bad practice you see often that needs to be solved? 
So it's important to realize that the marketplace is an ecosystem. It's a two-sided, sometimes it can be three-sided or four-sided, but at a minimum, marketplace is two sides. And everybody's used to in e-commerce and retail marketing and attracting and catering to the customers. But in a marketplace, you need to market and attract and cater and support the sellers. So people will tend to not hire the marketplace, the people to recruit sellers and to manage and support sellers. It's a chicken and egg. You need both if you're starting new. If you're an existing distributor or retailer, you already have the customer side, but you need to quickly ramp up the, the seller side. In, in, in some presentations and even a keynote I recently gave, I, I said that the transformation from a brick and mortar model, a mail order business or a brick and mortar model into e-commerce was was way easier than the transformation from a retail business model into a marketplace model. That's because it's so different from a business model perspective. Would you agree or disagree? It, it's kind of like in the, the dot-com, after the dot-com heyday, there are lots of retailers who said, this digital thing, that, that's not for us. It's a passing fad. The internet's going to pass. I don't think it's going to pass. I think it's a fundamental transformation of business. If you go back in history, there's yet another big retail transformation that happened about 100 years ago. Before 100 years ago, at least in the US, all the retailers would, uh, a customer would come into a counter and the retail employee would go back in the back of the store, pick up the goods, put them in a cart or a bag bring them forward, and then the customer would check out. Piggly Wiggly, about 100 years ago, transformed that business model by enabling customers to self-serve and go pick goods off the shelf and fill their own cart or their own bag, shopping bag, and check out. And lots of retailers said, oh, that's a crazy idea. There's going to be all kinds of shoplifting and theft. It's never going to work. Yet Piggly Wiggly took this transformation and became the number one grocer with 2,600 stores in a little over a decade. They transformed that, that segment of retail And dominated much like you know Amazon dominated in that same type of time frame, 10 to 15 years. And what they did is they shifted that labor from the employees to the customers. Marketplaces shift labor from the the employer, the retailer, to the third party sellers. So it's a major shift of 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 the economic model. So I think it's here to stay. I think it's in terms of how difficult the transition is. I think once somebody is enabled with The concept of commerce doesn't have to necessarily be a strong commerce platform because they can re-platform with platforms that include commerce and marketplace like Spriker and and launch it. And, and the the now at this current state where a lot of customers and a lot of third-party sellers, there are 22 million sellers out there now, are eager to launch on additional marketplaces. So the supply of sellers is there. The technology is there. The understanding of the business concept is there. So I think it's a lot easier now for e-commerce organizations to transform into marketplaces than it was for companies that had been traditional brick and mortar companies for decades or centuries to transform into digital online businesses. No, I agree. I agree. Tom, thank you for your time. 